Hello and welcome to The Booking Club, the podcast that brings you today's leading authors and commentators from a table at their favorite places to eat and drink. I'm your host, Jack Aldane. On this next episode, I'm going to be speaking to stand-up comedian, serial novelist and author of a new autobiography due to be released next month, Mark Watson. Mark Watson. Mark, thank you very much for coming on The Booking Club. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. What you've got in front of you is an early proof of the book. and I, I haven't actually seen one of those myself. I've just received the first copy of it. But uh, I was just thinking, given how much work it feels like the book was, uh, what a slim volume it looks like when it's actually down in front of you. Yeah, these limited edition early proofs look like sort of academic books, don't they? They look firstly like academic books. And, and as I say, almost an insultingly small amount of <laughs> actual matter for what for what you've put into it. Yeah, you wouldn't <laughs> yeah. think that eight deaths and life no, after them would fit into that. You'd hardly think any sort of uh, story would fit into that, to be <laughs> honest, yeah. It's like when people, and it's a nice thing to say, but sometimes people go, oh, I read your book, yeah, went through it in a day or a weekend, and it's obviously a compliment, but you also think, Christ, that was like two years for me to do that. You sort of want it to be like, um, well, I was going to say like a TV series, but actually people can also consume an entire TV series in a weekend. Basically, we just consume stuff at a far greater rate than anyone can possibly make it, I suppose, Absolutely. especially these days. You're already touching on things that you bring up in this book because, of course, a big theme of it is the pressure that one can put oneself under, particularly as a content creator, to constantly produce and produce and produce and never feel like the work is done. And yep. every project that's either been finished has lost all value because it's finished and every project that hasn't yet started is the big thing that is going to complete them and make them feel adequate as a person. I'm, I'm racing along here. Um, yeah, and, but you, and this is a reasonable summary of at least part of the book. Yeah. <laughs> as, as, the, as the labels in this book show you, I found it quite a life-enhancing book and I might say a bit more about that uh, oh, in, a, in a moment. Very but, generous um, of you. For the time being, could you explain to us why you've chosen the German gymnasium in King's Cross, England's first purpose-built gymnasium. Yes, it's not... Uh, no longer a I was, was going to say, it's, <laughs> I've not just brought you to a leisure centre, no. It's now a bastion of calories. Yeah, it's the, almost the opposite of an exercise <laughs> venue now. The architecture is quite eccentric. It basically is, there's an old domed wooden ceiling and like very high ceiling. It's basically quite a spectacular building, which you can just about imagine having been a Victorian gymnasium and so it was built in 1865 it says here for the german gymnastics society and it incredibly hosted events at well it says london's first olympic games back in 1866 but the modern olympics began after that so i don't know what quite what they mean by that uh, <laughs> there must have been some sort of unofficial anyway it's, it's i tend to love buildings that have got that have served a variety of purposes over the years you, you can just imagine all of the different lives going in and out of them yeah like there's a hotel one of my novels was based around um in Malibu called the Landmark. Oh, it wasn't called that in the book, but it was that hotel that gave me the other. And that has been, it is now a quite dated luxury hotel, but it's previously been, it was used as a military hospital during the war. Then it was used for government, storage of government documents. And so, so again, I like sitting in the building and thinking, being able to picture a hundred years of quite discrete human activities passing through that. But as I also said to you, my food tastes are quite simple. And They've, although it's no longer a German place, it still is German cuisine here, which means it's almost all sausage and schnitzel type food. And the final thing to recommend it is, um, even though I've lived in London a long time, I get lost quite easily. But this place is right next to King's Cross Station, so it's almost impossible not to find it. <laughs> your new book, as mentioned, Mortification, Eight Deaths and Life After Them, is your first autobiography. Yes, I've always been quite suspicious of people relatively young writing autobiographies, but 
I've, and I feel I've been through enough stuff. <laughs> yeah, I've at least yeah. got one in me. Yeah, Dedicated to your parents, who you say you hope don't read it. And... It's a weird one. There's quite a lot of self-revelation in the book, which my mum is a worrier in particular. She, she worries that I'm drinking too much or working too hard or being too hard on myself, all of which are things that are chronicled in the book. So I'd rather not put it into her head those ideas. I, I'd like them to sort of take pleasure from the fact that the book exists, but not necessarily wade into it too much. And it's due out in August next month. So looking forward to that. Congratulations on the book, by the way. As I say, yes. I found it um, a surprisingly cathartic experience to read. Though the book deals with a lot of life lessons of a showbiz professional, its lessons are as relevant, I think, to anyone with a smartphone as to a comedian with a microphone. I mean, it made sense to me as I read it that someone in your line of work looking around and seeing how performative life has become in the age of social media yeah. would want to weigh in and maybe dissuade people from judging themselves as harshly as perhaps you have trying to win over an audience night after night yeah that's right yeah the reason that i the reason i've never particularly wanted to write a memoir i was have written quite a bit of fiction as you mentioned but i was never interested in writing and this is not to do down all of them but a fair number of comedians write autobiographies which are basically just collection of anecdotes about how they came to be where they are which can be intrinsically interesting obviously but um yeah, I, the idea of this book came from a sense I had that I'd been through some stuff mentally and professionally and just in all senses, which I did think were universally, or at least had a chance of being universally applicable to people. Yeah, it's interesting, like, there is this, there's this genre of books, like Oliver Berkman, I really like his books. Uh, there, are, there are, I suppose Alain de Botton is slightly similar, but like, it's, it's an odd thing to do, because to write a book like this, as I've mentioned in the book, you're... It does sound as if you're saying, I've figured out a lot of stuff here about life and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna tell you how things are. Like you, I didn't want the book to be that, obviously, but I did want to offer it up as just a kind of uh yeah, a selection of things. I think I said in the book is as much to remind myself as anyone else really. I th I feel like there have been lessons which I've learned, uh quite harsh lessons from being in the public eye a little bit and from working as I do in entertainment, and that as much as wanting to convey them to other people I, I want to secure those lessons for myself because i'm constantly unlearning the stuff i think like messing up failing getting knocked back learning from that that's the conventional narrative but then in reality you often forget all over again or something else knocks you down so the, the book is a kind of it's a chronicle of a section of my life but it's also wanted to be something that i can go back to and and say well we've been here before you've even written this down before but I quickly found I, I was less interested in writing about comedy deaths and more interested in just the many ways life can go wrong and how a life in entertainment does act as a kind of good metaphor for a lot of the things we all go through. And as I say, I, I like to hope it's more relevant in this age than it might have been 20, 30 years ago because, as you've mentioned, we are all performing in life yes. way more than we used to. Uh, we're all competing and comparing way more because of smartphones, because of the social media, because of all of it. We live lives where we all seem to be operating under a permanent kind of scoreboard and i'm very everyone is conscious of that i think and though i understand that you didn't want this book to come across as saying it's all right guys i've got it figured out somebody in your line of work is better placed than most to say look if you feel like you're always on believe me i know how that feels exactly and yes the thing is is that anyone who spends less than a minute on instagram the sense you get is if you're not base jumping off of the Burj Khalifa in a wingsuit every Tuesday, nobody's ever going to love you. Which I am not, by the way. I've been to the Burj Khalifa. I've got absolutely no intention of jumping off that thing. <laughs> when did this this hunger for achievement comparison really start? I think it was very early on. I mentioned in the book some like relatively well silly examples of like trying to write my own newspaper. I wanted to be the first kid to edit a national newspaper. 
uh, was very jealous of an, a nine-year-old author called Jane Fisher who published these books called The Garden Gang. Doesn't sound like a massive thing to be jealous of, but I definitely was at the time. And then the work started, didn't it? You got busy. The weird thing is, I didn't want to be rich or have a fancy castle. I wasn't envious of those things. I was envious of the status, even as a nine-year-old. I wanted to be not necessarily a famous kid, because I don't know if that meant anything to me as an idea, but I definitely I wanted to have already achieved something. I, 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 the idea of someone being a kid like me but already having like secured their place in the world because i too remember as a kid finding being a kid to be quite a disempowering situation Some of it's that same yeah there wasn't much about my life that i wanted which i didn't have i didn't want a different lifestyle i just wanted to to feel that i'd yeah maybe it is to do with power or not exactly power but you're right like a lot of kids the way they channel this is uh like they, they look at footballers or pop stars or whatever one of the luxuries of a child is, is having the, the ability to just uh, entertain these sort of daydreams. But mine were a bit more than daydreams. They sort of became ambitions. They sort of kept early. you awake at night. Yeah. yeah. So from there, yes. what was the bridge between those very early days and the profession you ended up in? Well, at university, I did quite a bit of sketch comedy. I went to uni with a strong tradition. Well, Cambridge, I might as well say that for them. But it had a tradition of performance, obviously. I didn't know much about that, though. And I had no idea how to get into it. I'd been to Eddie Izzard once. And then you'd get Victoria Wood on TV at like bank holidays. That was about the most end of it. So I had no comic role models, I suppose is what I'm saying. Um, and I was going to say I threw myself into doing sketches, but that's also not true. I, I found it quite intimidating. I didn't know how to get into it. Cambridge is a bit of a hot house, but I, I think there's an element with all undergraduate university type societies that they tend to be dominated at first by the people that have just got the most confidence. They're just like the ones that sign up, the ones that volunteer to be the president or whatever. Like, So I... I dipped my toe into doing sketches for some time i'd see occasional people do stand up it wasn't very common most people in these footlight shows as they were were like the majority of it was sketch stuff occasionally i'd watch the stand up and think that looks like fun just doing that on your own you're not dependent on anyone else how and then uh but i never gave it a go and then well one day i saw uh, alex horn now famous as the host of taskmaster do like half an hour maybe longer like a proper long set stand-up set a show basically that was just him talking in those days, he did a lot of puns and one-liners and stuff. And again, I remember thinking, that looks like a lot like what I'd like to do. But I didn't have any reference point for it. Apart from I had done I did a little bit of public speaking. It's got after-dinner speaking, debates, that sort of thing. I thought, well, I was good at that. And this appears to be a world where that can be your thing. But again, it was far from clear how to do it. And then I tell the story in the book, and it almost feels a bit too convenient as a sort of your big... Well, it wasn't really a big break, but it was a breakthrough moment. There was a, com- a professional com- comedy night, like a touring roadshow coming... I think Jongler's on the road, which probably isn't a thing anymore, but... uh, And they came to our college, and they had a dropout. One of their acts dropped out at very short notice. And because I was known to have, like, done a bit of comedy, the the entertainment guy from our college just knocked on my door and said, I don't suppose you'd fancy doing a bit of stand-up, just filling in. They must have... Like, now I know as much as I do about comedy um, and the industry. They must have tried to replace it with another professional. They they can't have been relying on the university, but... Like to, to, that would never happen these days I don't think um, they must have offered it the money must have been terrible for the gig they must have offered it around failed in desperation turned to the college and said don't suppose you've got anyone that could just do a bit and I felt like well like counterintuitively you'd think it would be a terrifying way to do it because all your everyone you know is there and knows who you are and if, if it had gone wrong but I think it was the opposite. I felt like I had nothing to lose because the other guys were pros and they were actual comedians that had been paid to do it and I was just a like some guy from from college I, I i felt like plus i knew i could tailor it very specifically to so all my jokes were basically about the college itself they're like that stuff and you write that that first gig actually went reasonably well 
it did give you the confidence to continue. Yeah, an awful lot hangs on your first few experiences of doing right. that. I, you know, I, I had, as I said, an unusually supportive environment because there were, whatever, 100 people there, maybe more. Some of them were my mates. I didn't have loads of mates at college, really. I had a couple of close friends, but I wasn't unpopular either. I at least felt as if I... Like I, I knew the vibe. I knew, yeah, there was a lot in my favour. Um, and it, because it went well, I immediately thought, I, I want to do that more. How can I do that more? Had it gone badly in front of a number of people that I was still living around for months after that, I don't know if I ever would have. I think probably I still would have gone back to it. Well, we shouldn't forget that the name of this book is Mortification after all. Well, that, we need to talk about the first time that you died on stage. Well, it was two or three years in. It was a very rough comedy club in Maidstone in Kent. The people just didn't want to listen by now, I had a bit of a niche as a comedian. I'd won a competition. I'd had quite a nice, relatively speaking, a nice introduction to comedy. I'd, I'd played a lot of quite friendly clubs. And because I'd won a competition, I had a, a short-lived, but at least a springboard to having like getting booked for slightly nicer gigs. And I think what made it particularly bad was that... Like, so it was a real... If, if, you, if you're watching a film and a comedian was dying on stage, this is exactly what it would be like. All Apart from... In films, there's always a screech of feedback from the microphone when someone's doing badly. Not just comedians, singers. Yeah, yeah. And, he, and that is that's only in films. I think I don't, that hardly ever happens. <laughs> but you can you you know straight away if a if a mic wails like that in a film, something terrible is about to happen to the performer. That didn't happen, but every other cliche of a terrible comedy gig did happen. And and what's going through your mind well, as this happened? It was a combination of uh, the panic and adrenaline, but bad adrenaline that you might imagine, and and then also. Um, a kind of shock, basically, because even though, and I, I said this in the book, I was not really arrogant, but I, I'd done a couple of years of gigs without anything like this, quite like this happening. And part of the problem was a lot of them have been university gigs. When you're a newcomer, one of the ways you get stage time is student unions. And those gigs can be a bit restless, but very rarely people be hostile. Or like, So I think there was a part of me that believed I was somehow better, that I wouldn't ever experience a truly mortifying, awful death. And there's literally no comedian in the world that is that good. It is not. I don't think it's possible. I don't. I don't think I've ever spoken to even the best and most successful comedians I've ever met without them having loads of stories of things having gone badly. But just in, I was just coming out of a moment where I thought maybe I'm just really good at this. So all, all my defences were torn away because I didn't have enough experience to know what to do. Comedians talking to one another about their experience of dying on stage. Does it feel often that while you can relate to what they're saying and vice versa, no story of a, of a death their end is ever going to make the death that you've experienced feel any less Precisely. mortifying? It's a little bit like how before you have kids, people always talk about how tough it is, how overwhelming, exhausting, how it changed your life. And it's not that you don't believe them, but you, you sort of think, yeah, I'm sure, but still, I'm going to have a crack at this. And then a year in, you're that exact same person warning. It's like the ghost of Christmas future or the ancient mariner or one of these things. Like You, you become that dad going, I know you think you know it's going to be tiring, but it's worse than that. So it's, it's similar, I think. Yeah, you you definitely do relate to it. And I've even seen very good comedians, much better than myself and more experienced, have a tricky time. But yes, it's a classic case of not being able to fully imagine it until it happens. I think like a lot of life's tough situations, actually, one of the things about being a human is you do have this, even if you're not, not particularly, like I'm not, I wouldn't describe myself as a bullish or particularly optimistic person, but you, all of us have this feeling that like, uh, sure I've heard about that being difficult but I, when it comes down to it let's let's see how I deal with it let's certain things in life parenting is a good example but there are lots of examples you you can only uh, learn how to handle them by coming out the other side and they will always be more difficult than you thought even if you think you factored that in you know this menu better than I do 
what do you normally go for? As you say, well, it's a German menu. Yes, it, it is uh, literally and figuratively medium taters. Not a particularly summery menu, no. but then this isn't a very summery season. No, it's not. Actually, this could easily pass for October. <laughs> um, I think my favourite thing is the, is the veal schnitzel, the Werner schnitzel, actually, or Wiener schnitzel rather, which is about as straight down the line German food as you can get. I was considering get. that. Do you think that's worth going for? I think I will go for that, I think. I am one of these people that like overthinks ordering in a restaurant and if I see someone else that I feel has out-ordered me, I feel yeah. sort of remorse. I'm a marketing man's dream, really. You love a good comparison. Yeah, even here I'm <laughs> competing subtly with the other diners without fully acknowledging it to myself, yeah. Not all the deaths in this book are deaths on stage. Some of them happened actually before you even got into comedy. We sort of jumped ahead at the beginning there and talked about how you went from wanting to break the children's literature market uh, to getting on stage. But the deaths that you experienced on stage after the first... Yes. How did it start to spiral into something more than the ups and downs of a, of a job in stand-up comedy? It became more serious. Well, it had quite a lot of success by most measures. I was on the TV, This is, and I was still young and uh, on the way up, I was in my sort of mid to late 20s. I suppose late 20s is when I started to have problems with the way I was processing things. I'd become famous, well, relatively famous, at least well-known uh, on TV quite quickly. Uh, I had a bit of money. I was doing well. Uh, I was, and by any standards, I'd had a pretty fast ascent to that point, um, largely because I was in the right place at the right time. Panel shows and stuff scooped me up. I, I did well at the Edinburgh Fringe. Part of it was, I mean, like I'd, I'd done well for myself, as they say, but I'd also just been uh, aided by just sort of the tide of events. Stand-up, as I've mentioned, had, was becoming just a huge thing. A lot of kids, really like me, people in their mid to late 20s, were suddenly earning quite good money, getting quite a lot of recognition, all of it. And um, and then gradually things started to, well, it's even having written a book about it, it's difficult to talk, it's difficult to be um, forensic about what happened. There came a point where other people that started out with me were doing slightly better, where I was starting to be passed over but for some of the gigs that I'd previously got, where my sense of a sort of not quite frictionless rise, because as we've mentioned, I had uh, nights like that awful one in Mason, that first death. I'd had bad gigs. I'd had knockbacks, of course, um, but things were going pretty well. And then I just started to get the creeping sensation that they were either not going as well or I wasn't going to be as successful as I maybe thought. It's difficult to explain what my ambitions were, but they were kind of boundless, I suppose, in the same way that that kid wanted to do things like be a published author or be somehow as much of a pop star figure as Alan Jones, these, these weird ambitions. Having been given a taste of success as a stand-up, more than a taste, having been given a decent helping of it, I suppose, and I wasn't consciously thinking this, but I suppose my brain did start to go to places where it shouldn't be going. I started to think uh, I could be one of the most famous stand-ups in the, in the country, in the world, because those things weren't that far out of reach. I, I, I was one of the biggest acts at the Edinburgh Festival already. I was on TV a lot. I was getting... I did, like, it wasn't obvious what I, was, what I thought wasn't happening. It, it, I mean, some of it was obvious. Some of it was just as simple as comparing myself. They're, they're starting to become... Like there was a point where I hosted the NME Awards and I can only have been about 28, 29. It was a massive gig. It this sounds to me thing. like you'd won, but you didn't realise you'd won. Yeah, when I look back at that period, by most standards, things were going well. Like I mentioned the NME Awards because that's a, a night where, so it's on Channel 4, people like Blur and The, the, the Cure were there. It was You would watch someone hosting that, as I was, and think, that guy must be a really famous guy. And then it didn't even go badly. It was quite a thankless, difficult gig, just loads of coked up music industry people 
but it looked all right on TV and people were texting me going, Christ, you host the NME Awards. This is, you know, I'd also done, an, I'd been on an advert. I think in the same year, I did an advert for Magna's Pear Cider, which is funny. Like, I remember it, yeah. Yeah, it's certainly not one of the high points of my career. I'm also not particularly ashamed of it. It was just something I did for quite a lot of money at the time. Turning 30, where I noticed I wasn't quite getting those anymore. You know, you might go on and do the Brit Awards after the NME Awards. I didn't do that. The advert could have led to more adverts it, it never really did i i just i started to feel that i'd maybe had peaked and i hadn't made the most of those opportunities right, right there was also i was like parallel with the uh comedy i was writing novels and again there'd been quite a bit of fanfare around my first novel he didn't actually sell that well but there was like just look at this guy already a stand-up 24 25 now he's published his debut novel so i, I definitely was like there was a narrative and a trajectory i appeared to be on where I was going to be a superstar in every field that I, you know, turned my hands to. Uh, we mentioned Martin Amis off, um, off air, as it were. I was reading those sort of writers, McEwen, Amis, the big American ones. I wanted to be those guys. I wanted to, I wanted to be a famous comedian, successful comedian, and a heavyweight literary novelist. And my markers of success were unfair ones in my head, but also they weren't. They were ill-defined. Throughout my career, most of the times I felt. That I've failed at things or that I'm not doing well are because a I'm competing against something I have in my head a gold standard and unfair. I think I said in the book like most of the times we make ourselves feel like a failure or a fraud or whatever it is. It's not even so much that we're competing with other people. We think we are, but we're really competing with a phantom version of ourselves that only exists in our heads. That's definitely what it was for me. I wasn't. There were people like Russell Howard or I suppose Michael McIntyre who were direct contemporaries of mine who were now doing better, earning more money. Uh, more famous but it wasn't really about them it was about there was a there was a Mark Watson in my head yeah that was somehow bigger and better than me and that that is a uh, problem that if you let it will never go away like that will that is to do with how you are wired and how you experience success and failure like that is an internal thing it is it would not be dispelled by any amount of success I don't think that is to do with your brain because you can always add on to this idea you have of yourself. Yes. Because who we are is an open question to all of us. Yeah. You were doing so much at the time. Yeah. As you say, the first novel, the Magnus Pear Cider, which, you know, whether you knew it at the time or not, spawned one of Stuart Lee's most quotable jokes. Well, I knew um, it pretty soon afterwards, I can tell you. Yeah, people still mention it to me now. And people imagine I'm still sort of slighted by that, even though I was perfectly aware that doing an advert would lower my credibility in some people's eyes but i i, I thought it would, i still think it would have been mad to turn it down anyway yeah yeah but that's the thing, even and again the panel shows as well as i say the ones that i remember watching growing up what does the comedian see what's the experience like it's interesting uh my experience of um mock the week in particular the panel show which i have to be careful what i say not because of the fear of offending anyone but just because for a start the host Dara Breen was always very kind to me and in fact so were the other people on the show more or less I didn't ever really have a, a clash of personalities with the other people and I wouldn't even say that the atmosphere was that competitive between the comedians but it certainly is more so than it looks I think somebody watching a panel show gets uh, the impression of a bunch of mates like fizzing jokes back and forth and having a laugh basically yeah. Um, well, there was always that moment in Mock the Week, wasn't it, where comedians would run to the mic. There was that sort of sense of who would get that's there right. first. That's there right. There was a sort of a, a five-second window where you think, uh, have I got a, a joke about this? And in yeah. the time you'd had that thought, one of the more experienced guys would already be up there. Yeah. And so, yeah, the, so Mock the Week's format, even though the scoring was kind of nonsense and no one really cared who won, still it was, it was packaged pretty competitively. And a problem with it in those days as well, which 
went away as the show got older and a bit gentler is that um there wasn't that much of a rolling cast of people some of them there were, there were people that were on it all the time regulars and so the audience's preference was obviously for those and if you were uh, a lesser name than them if you're just not as familiar a um i, I think this is a diff- i suppose the difference is so just uh in terms of mechanics have i got news for you for example has paul uh, Murnie and hislop and one other person with each of them so there's two guests two regulars and then whoever the host is with Mogger Week, it was basically most of them were regulars and you were the occasional guest. So your role in the show wasn't that clear. You didn't have the status that they had. All of these things meant that it was quite a difficult show to assert your identity. And, and I think one of the reasons that I started to feel in this period that I've talked about that I was not as good as I hoped and wasn't going to be as successful as I hoped and things were going against me was that panel shows were never very well suited to me. It takes me about 20 minutes to answer a question, as, as we've seen here. Um, but most of those shows are built around the idea of like wedging your foot in the in the comedy door and immediately just firing out those answers so i was i always felt like a bit of a bit part player on those shows and i and the reason is that i was and it sort of didn't it it shouldn't have mattered but it meant there was this weird the thing i was most known for now was popping up on things on Mother week but it was also the thing i felt the least competent at least able to do and i was stuck in that trap for some time and i think that led to my mental state deteriorating but the example of the panel show you just gave I think meetings at most people's jobs can make them feel the way a comedian might do on a panel show. Yes. Not heard, peripheral, unable to speak up. These problems are experienced far and wide. For sure. I, again, when you've been generous in saying you think the book has you know, something to say to people beyond comedy and entertainment, I, do th- I think that stand-up is a very uh, heightened form of existence where... Yeah. You are like by the nature of the art, you're clamouring for attention. You are in, you sort of are in competition with people, even your friends to some degree. Uh, not as badly as maybe actors are. There's enough. There's broad enough church that like, there's room for quite a few comedians to do well. But nonetheless, you know, there's. So, but yeah, there are other ways in which the problems of a comedian are exactly the same as the problems of anyone else. It's just that uh, going through it as a comedian is maybe more public and more extreme way. But yes, it's this, I think all of us. You certainly don't have to be a comedian to be looking across at someone at the next desk thinking he or she is somehow doing better is probably earning more than me or feeling underappreciated in your job or in your life feeling that you're not doing well enough is uh, obviously extremely common phenomenon well this is the thing actually i think social media obviously has exaggerated these tendencies in all of us because every moment of your life you can be looking at what other people are doing and that's probably not healthy but i don't think as with most problems or challenges of the human existence i don't think social media created them uh, they i guess they they amplify it but the the tendency to measure yourself against unfair standards and want what someone else has without even really being able to articulate that that is potentially wired into every one of us it's not it's a slightly side issue i suppose but it's not purely that uh, it's not good to be comparing yourself with people it, it, it's just as you say twitter in particular but also facebook which i never really go on now these these things are endless conversations and the bottom line is I don't think we're designed to be in endless conversations. You, part of the reason I stepped away from Facebook was that every day I was hearing the inner monologues, desires, reflections of like 70 or 80 people before I'd even got my head together in the morning. And I don't think that is, you know, sometimes you will, we've all had experience of scrolling through Twitter, reading about 15 different opinions on 15 entirely unconnected subjects. And then you, you look in the mirror and think, hang on, what, 
What am I yeah. doing? I'm not yeah. even woken up. It's absurd. You get out of bed in the morning and start scrolling through your phone and you end up saying shut up to the screen as, yeah. though, as though you haven't voluntarily decided to pick it up and start scrolling. Yeah, it, yeah. you've walked into a really noisy building and you're asking everyone to quieten down, but you didn't need to walk you in didn't there have to for walk sure. In there. And this is all slightly peripheral to what we've been talking about, but this sort of comes back to the same thing. If you feel unhappy with yourself or your life, it is because you're comparing yourself to something, either an illusory version of, of yourself that doesn't exist or the lives that other people have. And that's the thing. It's not just that social media makes you compare yourself to other people. It makes you reflect on where you are so, so much. Like how many followers you've got, how many likes you've got, all of these things. Like it, Social media does, ha again, it's not intrinsic to it, but it, 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 ha it carries the danger of making us all massive narcissists because who you are what you present to other people, how is the Mark Watson brands doing? Like it goes way beyond comedy and entertainment. All of us are now walking around as yeah, as brands, I well, suppose. Well exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that's a very, very odd thing to be saying. And that, and that's again, I know I've made this point already, but that's why I think somebody who deliberately went into the profession you did to build a brand yeah. and has learned what showbiz at the coalface looks like is now looking at a world that has been kind of molded around the yes. rules and metrics of showbiz and is saying to people Believe me, this is not a healthy state of mind to be in all yes. of the time. I've been there. You don't want to go That's there. That's right. Everyone is now living like a stand-up comedian. Yeah. In some cases, literally, like as soon as there's a news event, you see, it is quite an existentially interesting moment for a comedian where whatever happens in the news, there'll be 50 gags about it, some of them really good gags, on your timeline, mostly not from comedians. One of the phrases in the book that comes up more than once, but which is not self-explanatory when you first hear it, is... Most things don't happen. I don't even know where I got the phrase, most things don't happen. I read it somewhere or heard it somewhere and it lodged in my head um, the way these things do. And I've got loads of like wise little axioms in my head that I, I have no idea what their origin was. Um, and I suppose, again, that's how we all, we all, we're all now constantly reading lists of stuff and like 10 things. to. So somewhere years ago, I heard this basically... Um, most things that happen is a, a kind of mantra that I have. What I find it valuable for is, um, well, on a literal level, like most TV shows that you pitch won't be made. Um, most, most people, I, I think I use the examples of reality shows in my, you know, there's, there's an idea that put about by and cultivated by the culture of stuff like The X Factor or whatever, Bridge Cosana, if you want it enough, you'll get there. I just want this, I've always wanted to be singing, I want it so much. And I think that mentality leaves a lot of people unhappy and disappointed. So I think it's, but also like most, most people you fancy probably won't fancy you back. Most like in whatever field of human engagement. And again, this is not to be excessively negative. It's just the odds are generally against everything going exactly the way you would like them. Uh, so most things that happen, it's just quite a useful little mental uh, refrain to have to remind yourself not to expect too much, always to hope for things from life, but not expect that they ought to be yours automatically. Um, uh, and then the flip side is, is it can also be quite comforting. Somebody like me with my sort of brain um, will get themselves animated by and worried about a load of potential worries, worlds you could live in, you know, stuff as simple as like, what if I mess this gig up? But also just, you know, what if something happens to my son today? What if all of us can conjure hundreds of different things every day, which could go wrong, could be disastrous. And if you're an overthinking sort of person, which most of us are, especially in this age, those things just present themselves constantly. And so most things that happen is also a nice little reminder that most of, like, sure, most of the uh, wildest dreams you have of success or fame probably won't come off in just the way the odds are. But neither will most of your the most, worst case scenarios. Most of your awful fears won't be realised either. Yeah. Right. Most lives are lived somewhere between these 
yeah. parameters. Again, is it Shakespeare? There's some quote that nothing is ever as good or as bad news as it first seems. And that, that could be quite a killjoy thing to say. Of course, you should be feeling your emotions. You should be having your reactions to stuff. But for someone like me, it's quite useful to remember this probably isn't quite as massive, whatever it is, whether it's a good or bad thing, it, it will come to seem slightly less significant than it is in the moment. I find that a useful way of just tackling the ups and downs of life. When do you feel that you started doing things, making things, writing things primarily for yourself rather than for other people? It's a tricky one to answer because, of course, I still write books hoping for them to be published and for people to buy them. I still tour as a comedian hoping and more than hoping out and out asking for people to buy tickets. So I can't really claim that I that all my creative impulses are to do with my own desire rather than any sort of commercial interest. But I, I definitely have reached a point where pretty much I only want to make or do things which I think which are satisfying to me and I think have integrity and value and I don't always but on the whole I avoid doing things I wouldn't now accept a role in a tv show which I felt was not good for me or which I didn't think I'd be good at 10 years ago as you've seen in the book I would almost do anything largely out of a fear that if I didn't do it I would be you know missing some opportunity the fear of a missed opportunity is a very powerful thing again not just in comedy in, in, in any FOMO way. is real yeah. FOMO is a real thing and and there should be a thing there probably is a phrase adjacent to FOMO, which is the specific fear of turning an opportunity down and then seeing someone else enjoying it or something like not quite FOMO, but f- fear of boga, um, fear of giving away or yeah, something like exactly. that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Fear of wrongly turning something yeah. down is, is a powerful thing, I think. It's a long acronym, though. We'll have to work on that. Yeah. The Germans probably got something. They've probably got a single compound word. You know, the entertainment has so much. There is so much strategy, so much management. There are so many concerted attempts made to go down specific paths, but. I have learned that if you just try to create the things, do the things that you most want to do, you might be rewarded richly. But even if you aren't, you've still you've still had fun. You've still done the thing. That's the that's why it's complicated to talk about. You can't just say build it and they will come. You can't just make out that if you're a band, just keep making the music you want to, and eventually you'll get there. Because you might not. I mean, even if you're good, people might just not like that. For every truly niche band that have achieved mainstream success, there's got to be ten of those guys making similar music that no one wants to listen to at right, all. Right. So it's misleading to to make out that if you just follow your instincts, you'll always be rewarded. But you will be rewarded in the sense that you, you've got your album, you've got your book, I think. Keep making the stuff. Yes, I've learned that I want to keep making stuff because I want it to exist more than I want to earn money out of it or follow. I'd like those things as well. I'd like people to read my books. But idea for a book is good enough that I think I have to write that, then that means I do have to write it regardless of what will ever happen to it. It took me ages to learn that lesson, but it is a difficult one to have. The other phrase we haven't talked about, just as important in the book, is the phrase winning at life. I suppose it's on the sort yeah. of the toxic end of the spectrum opposite most things don't happen. And you write here, yes. just as life is not a game you can win or lose, it isn't something that you have to tackle on your own. You say here, it's a team effort. We live in public. People talk a lot of bollocks about tribes and our primal instincts. There are good reasons why we've developed beyond them, such as the fact that living in a house is noticeably better than living in a cave and spreading human waste to mark our territory is less workable as a system than just having separate door numbers. Yeah, I describe in the book running the marathon, one and the only time I've run a marathon, and I had this enormous sense of, even though we were all running individually, of it being a team effort, because it's like there's no, there's sort of no point, none of us getting a medal, well, we actually, everyone gets a medal, <laughs> uh, marathon's been what they are, but like, no, no one here is going to win or lose, we're just all dragging each other over this arbitrary finish line, which is 26 miles away, I, I think just because you have a lot of time to think during marathon, about four and a half hours in my case, you, I, do, I do remember thinking, I'm learning something about how humans can collaborate from this, I, I guess because a marathon looks like a race, a running race looks like the most inherently competitive thing you can embark on, 
But if you're in a race with enough people, like a marathon or a half marathon, any like communal thing like this, it isn't a race anymore, really. It's, it's we've all decided to do something cool together. And the other main thing that taught me this, which is recounted in the book, is I was on this Bear Grylls uh, survival show. And survival show is the, is the phrase rather than reality show. It's called The Island. It's similar, slightly similar to I'm a Celebrity, but I would say, although I'm biased, more grueling because you're, just, you're exiled on this island with no food or water or and no real no support at all, and you just have to survive. And I talk about in the book how I had this... I was really, really struggling with... I had terrible fear of lightning, which uh, there were storms every day. I felt mentally and physically shot to pieces by the first even week or so. But so did everybody else. But all of us were kind of experiencing it individually. And I felt like I was, again, this feeling, I must be doing something wrong because I'm having a terrible time here. Gradually, we learned to, we only could have survived that experience as a group, as a collective. And when I came home, I thought about it a lot and thought about the fact that I'd made myself vulnerable to those people and they to me. We'd worked on it together. And again, it was just, whereas I'm a celebrity or most of these shows are our competition, someone is voted off, someone loses. This was not about losing or winning. It was literally contend people that don't really know each other collectively survive win not against each other win against the situation and again i felt like i learned something about life from that it's like of course we're we're all in competition everyone wants like nice stuff from life and so if somebody else has it it feels as if it diminishes your opportunity to get it and sometimes that's true uh if harry kane plays for England, then a, another centre forward can't have that shirt. But most things aren't like that. Most, most things, things are not zero sum. Most things are not zero sum games, and I believe we act as if uh, is. absolutely yeah. we act as if most things are, and that yes. is that is at the root of a lot of unhappiness. Yes. The sense that whatever happens for somebody else takes another slice yes. of the cake away from the table yes. until there will be no more happiness left. Whereas as humans, we have the capacity to keep making more cakes of happiness to yes. keep to keep generating yes. more stuff. That's not right. always, but usually, even in the case of say. If you want to be a movie star, Margot Robbie is playing Barbie, so you aren't in that role, sure. You, you can learn things from watching her and go on to be successful yourself. Even if you feel intense jealousy of people doing amazing stuff, we all do have the ability to unlock something in us, ourselves which channels that into positivity. You read a book, you're envious of the author, you write a book, like, it can yeah. be done. Even when even things that do appear to be zero-sum games are still calling you to achieve things on your own terms i suppose as soon as you start thinking did i win or lose my life you, you just start asking the wrong question and you're likely to get the wrong answers the you know again i'm a big sports fan but but life isn't like football in, in a, a key way you don't someone else doesn't have to lose for you to win in almost all situations so that's why i think even though winning at life is just like a sort of twee thing that people bandy about uh, on social media I, I think the existence of it as a phrase tells you something that's wrong with our our collective mentality congratulations again Mark and thank you very much for coming on the podcast thanks for having me I thank you for bringing me to this <laughs>